Hello, my name is Ian Dunn. I'm the editor of Politics.co.uk, and this is the second Politics.co.uk podcast, the podcast where we peel across the surface of the news to try and find out the mechanics of what's really going on underneath. This week, we're looking at voter ID. Last week saw the pilot for voter ID systems in Bromley, Woking, Gosport, Swindon and Watford during the local elections. Some estimates suggest that up to 4,000 voters were turned away in total. The reform was recommended by the Electoral Commission and is being robustly defended by government ministers, but there have been criticisms by opposition parties, charities and the Electoral Reform Society. Here to get to the bottom of why we're doing it, whether it worked and if we should be doing it at all in the first place, are Matt Singh, election and sports analyst at Number Cruncher Analytics, and Alex Runswick, chief executive of Unlock Democracy. Uh, Hello, both of you. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, Good to be here. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about Unlock Democracy? So we're a grassroots campaigning organisation. We campaign around issues of democratic and constitutional reform. Uh, We think that politics should work for everyone and that fundamentally at the moment it doesn't. Uh, So we campaign, our core campaign is around uh, wanting a citizen-led constitution, uh, written constitution, Um, but we campaign on all kinds of issues, everything from voting, participation, to uh, we're doing a lot of work on Brexit at the moment and the government power grab there. So anything to do with basically democracy and the constitution, and you can pretty much expect us to be there. Mm, That's very good. Um, Matt, and you analyse sports and elections, which I presume share some qualitative features. (laughs) Yes, well, as as the name suggests, it's a lot of number crunching, and the the sports part of it is a relatively new uh, thing. Expect a little bit more, given that there's a major sporting event coming up in the next few weeks. but. that one. Even yeah. I have heard about that massive sporting <laughs> event. Yeah. Um, but on the politics side, I mean, uh, best known for the Number Crunch Politics uh, blog site, um, but also we're now doing uh, original polling, um, but also analysis of elections and voting and uh, things like this. Excellent. So we, I mean, this the, the sort of stuff around voter fraud is is itself not sort of quite contested, really, but sort of to try and set the scene before we look at whether it's really taking place. Alex, do you want to sort of talk to us a bit about the kind of things that are going on around sort of legitimacy of elections? I mean, I'm thinking about things like sort of voter registration, boundary changes, restrictions on the voluntary sector. Um, So, I mean, the first thing to say in terms of the voter ID trials is, you know, I don't in principle have a problem with people being required to have ID, some form of ID at a polling station. In many ways, it is anachronistic that, you know, we do have to take ID to collect a parcel from the post office but we don't have to prove who we are to vote so in principle it's not necessarily a bad thing but it's all about the context it's all about why we're doing this on what basis and why now Um, and if I was going to do you know a top 10 list of problems with our elections at the moment in the UK Mm. I'm not sure voter ID would even make my top 10 it certainly wouldn't make my top 5 it might just scrape in at number 10 can we we do a top 5 I'm genuinely quite intrigued Um, not necessarily in this order but things that I am far more concerned about than voter ID so uh, the very nature of our electoral system and the fact that many people live in one party states that the way we vote doesn't actually match the seats that that we get in the House of Commons or in local elections unless you're in Scotland or Northern Ireland where you do have a proportional electoral system for local elections Hmm. um so that would be you know, one of my big ones. Then there would be a lot around money and politics. So that would cover issues around electoral fraud. So, for example, election expenses. I think there are a very, very large number of reforms we need in that area that for some reason the government have been studiously ignoring despite the Electoral Commission calling them for many, many years. So... Um, We saw a spike, for example, in 2015 with um, electoral fraud cases. Most of those were to do with election expenses, not to do with people turning up to an electoral 
to hmm. a polling station and claiming to be somebody else. Well, we saw sort of one earlier this morning with, with Leave.eu sort of being accused of, of incorrectly reporting exactly. their donations. Yes. So there's, there is a lot around uh, the way money is donated to political parties and to election campaigns that I would want to change. There are things around the way spending limits are run during elections that I would want to change. Those would all come far, far, far above requiring people to have... Um, idea at polling stations. The other thing I would want us to look at is, is, and the reason why I'm particularly concerned at the moment about idea at polling stations is about it's to do with the culture of our democracy and the fact that we have a number of different reforms that are limiting people's ability to participate. So if you look at things like the Lobbying Act that, that the coalition government passed, it did virtually nothing to restrict commercial lobbyist influence on our democracy, but it did massively impact on the way civil society can advocate on behalf of their members and supporters and service users. Um, so you have a problem where not only is civil society being prevented from talking about issues in the run-up to elections, they're often the organisations that are doing most in terms of encouraging people to register to vote, encourage organising hustings, um, encouraging people to ask specific questions to their candidates. And that kind of activity is being restricted. So at the same time as we've got voter ID, which, you know, we had one case one case in 2017 hmm. uh, of a conviction of personation. And um, so, you know, we have all these pilots and yet we have enormous numbers of examples of election spending rules being broken. The Conservative Party were fined £70,000 and they would have been fined more if the Electoral Commission had that power. We have a situation where both the CPS and the Electoral Commission found serious inaccuracies in the Conservative Party's election expenses, but it falls through a hole in the law and so neither can take action. And, you know, we're not taking action on things that we know that are significant problems, but things that are low level, yes, we need to be aware of and take seriously, we're full steam ahead with those. <laughs> uh, Matt, what, what is the, the, where are we with the fraud? So, I mean, what, what is the evidence that we have of what is taking place? And I obviously I don't just mean impersonation, but I, I presume that there's allegations around postal fraud as well. Sure. So, I mean, the, the things that are, that fall under the category of uh, electoral fraud include quite a wide range of things, many of which are not connected to voting at all. So, for example, in uh, 2015, I've got the actual figures here, there were, um, well, 330, sorry, 383 allegations related to the campaign, hmm. and then uh, smaller numbers related to nomination administrative things. That has nothing to do with voting itself. So when we're talking about voting fraud, we're talking specifically about um, well, it broadly falls into two categories. So there's on-the-day voting, so in-person and proxy voting. Proxy is a very small number. And then the postal voting thing. And then within that, the, the voter ID thing re relates specifically to the in-person voting. Uh, the postal voting thing, I mean, I, my, my background to this, as well as being an election analyst, I do happen to live in the London borough of Tower Hamlets. Um, and have I actually have the dubious honour of having legally voted twice in the same election because an electoral court forced it to be rerun. <laughs> so I managed to vote in the same election twice because it was held twice. Can you um, remind us of the Tower Hamlets thing? Actually? Yeah, so the, the Tower Hamlets thing, this relates to, um, well, look for Rahman and the um, his uh, caucus, as it were, formerly Tower Hamlets first. Many um, people... Uh, associated with that, uh, uh, continuing either as independents or under um, different banners. But I mean, essentially, there were there were various um, irregularities around 
uh, various practices. I think there was um, postal voting was part of it, but then there were there were a whole lo- a load of other things that were nothing to do with um, voting. So it's kind of. I mean, I think proponents of um, voter ID and other um, such measures have sort of uh, perhaps not willfully, but allowed people to conflate. Um, mm. different types of electoral fraud that are not really related to the security of the ballot itself um, as, a, as a way of, um, well, perhaps because they know that it, it, it strengthens their case. But um, certainly, yes, it is a very wide uh, category of which voting in, voting fraud in on-the-day voting is quite a small subset. And that is simply impersonation. There's no other kind of voting on the day fraud that's possible that we'd be we'd be discussing. It's it's mainly impersonation. There, there are other things. So, for example, uh, we've already said that electoral fraud covers a very wide range of offences. So, it could, for example, be trying to intimidate somebody out of polling station. That huh, would be considered huh. electoral fraud as well as impersonating somebody else and and trying to vote in an election that you shouldn't be voting in. You, you said that there was just one case last year. One, one conviction. One conviction, I see. And what about the years beforehand? I mean, do, do we have any it's, sense? It's, it's fairly low. It's, it's difficult to find the exact stats on convictions, but it's, it's interesting to look at the 2015 case because you know, those were the stats that we just heard. Um, because... You know, even then, the cases of personation quite low. It was about 123, I think, something like that. This or, or, is 130. I'm not sure if there's yeah, more recent. But it's, yeah. it's you know, there are, in most years, there are around, say, 200 and odd, between 200 and 300 investigations. In 2015, there was a spike and it was over 400. But even within that larger year of there being more investigations into electoral fraud issues, it was still a very small number that were actually about personation. So it really is a qu- question of taking, you know, a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And if you... The the logic that the government have for doing this, the, 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 the big thing... So this came out of the Pickles Review, which, again, was prompted by the Tower Hamlets case. So they did a big review into uh, cases of electoral fraud. And I do think, you know, in terms of postal voting, there are serious concerns that we do need to address. Uh, none of that will be helped with voter ID. Um, but, you know, one of the issues that they raised in 2017 was this idea that, well, people might be voting twice, you know, because, for example, if you're a student and you're registered in both, say, London and Manchester, uh, there's a possibility you could vote twice. Voter ID is not going to change that. Hmm. There are things that could change that, like having a national uh, database of electors and things like that. You know, but, poly- you know, ID is, is not... It's not the solution to the problem they have identified. It's more like they have a policy solution that they want to implement and they are finding a number of different problems that they are claiming it will cure when it won't. I find it very hard to uh, visualise what impersonation entails. I mean, what I don't get is uh, you'd go in, I guess, to the polling station and go, my name is Ian Dunn and your name is actually John Smith or whatever. Mm. But I don't know how you would... I mean, you would have to track my movements to know that I haven't gone or that there is a person called Ian Dunn who is there. Or know that that person's dead, which or, is often... Right. Because bear in mind that elect- the electoral register is compiled about once a year and for obvious reasons they don't want to... Uh, they, they're obviously fairly cautious about taking people off it. So invariably at any point in time there will be a large number of people who have since died and of course there's often public records. It's quite easy to find a list of people who have, who have died just by looking at the local oh, so press. That would- that, so, that answers my question a bit because I was sort of going to. I was sort of thinking it seems an awful lot of work for just one vote. Yeah. And if your intention is to swing an election, yeah. this this is a very heavy duty way to do it. Yeah. But if you have a list of all the people that have died that might still be on the electoral, yeah. I suppose that 
and you amassed but enough people e- that even could then impersonation is still a very inefficient way yes. of defrauding mm. an election obviously i'm not advocating that people should defraud an election <laughs> how should someone <laughs> defraud an election <laughs> uh, postal votes it's actually the best way of doing um but you know the, the the reason why there haven't been that many cases of impersonation is because as you say it's quite an in- intensive way of trying to rig a ballot whereas it's much easier to say uh, own a building that is actually a business property and claim that 30 people live there and register them all to vote, register, sign them up to postal ballots. And you, know, you can do that on an industrial scale. And people have done that on an industrial scale. And you know, that's why there are well-known mm. case studies of why there are problems with postal votes. It's so much harder to do that when you're talking about somebody actually having to turn up to a... Um, a polling station. And yes, you might have lists of people who have died recently, or you might have fictitiously registered people. So there are ways you can do it, but there are much easier ways. Are, are there, I mean, while we're on the subject, and very briefly, are there any obvious solutions to the to the postal fraud problem? Well, one is that you stop having postal voting on demand, because what happened was um, when the Labour government came in in 97, for very good reasons, they wanted to increase participation. They were worried that not enough people were voting. Mm. Unfortunately, like many politicians, they conflated ease with why people aren't voting uh, mm. and thought if they only made it a bit more convenient, everybody would turn up to the polls and not look at some of the more fundamental reasons of why people felt their votes didn't count or why they always got the same politicians. Mm. Um, so... It used to be that if you wanted a postal vote, you could have one and you were perfectly entitled to it, but you have to give a specific reason. So it might be, for example, you were going to be away for work or you were living away from home at university. So it it wasn't like, you know, it was a major test, but you had to specify why you wanted a postal vote. That changed in 2001, so you could just have one because you wanted to. And that meant that unscrupulous campaigners, party activists other people who had, you know, nefarious intent, uh, could either sign people up for postal votes without them knowing or pressure people to have postal votes. And then you get into all kinds of scenarios where, um, you know, people are having their postal votes filled in for them and it, it escalates. I see. Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of the rationale for introducing it in the first place, I mean, w- what you have to look back, I mean, in, in defence of the decision to do it, 2001, the turnout was 59%. Hmm. And only nine years earlier in 1992, it had been 78%. So that's a, it was actually the lowest turnout and the biggest drop in turnout since the Universal franchise. And obviously at that point, there was no telling whether it might drop by another you know, yeah. 10 points next time. So given the situation at the time, it's not that surprising. No. However, in hindsight, um, given obviously turnout has recovered and also all of the research that's been done on why people don't vote, which, I mean, the short version is that they don't want to. Uh, it's not. I mean, it's not as though going down to a polling station is something that's going to stop people if they want to do it. Um, in most cases, but um, I mean, uh, yeah. So, in the light of what we know now, I think the decision, even if it was reasonable at the time, I think perhaps needs to be reconsidered. Yeah. That's interesting. I am now going to interrupt this discussion for a short commercial break. If you're publishing a report uh, or launching a campaign aimed at reaching political stakeholders, you need more than a plain old PDF. A short, punchy video will grab attention and communicate your key messages. Videos are six times more likely to be retweeted than images. Senate Media specialises in creating short animations, summarising reports and making policy recommendations. Check out www.senatemedia.co.uk. Um, why did the electoral? I mean, if, if, if this is the case, I don't, I'm a bit of at a loss as to why the electoral commission were recommending that something be done. 
Well, it was a combination of measures. So you've got to, you've got to bear in mind that we had. In the early 2000s, we'd just liberalised postal voting. So you had postal voting on demand. You did have an increase in the number of cases of postal vote fraud. You also had a situation where we still had um, the household franchise. So the head of the household signed up however many people the head of the household determined were living there and eligible to vote. Um, and we had no personal identifiers. So wh- when you when you registered to vote, your head of the household did it. And they did. you didn't have to sign the form. You didn't have to provide the date of birth there was no way of you know, if you registered me as living at your address uh, there was no way for them to check whether or not that was actually me uh, somebody turning up to your polling station saying I'm registered at this address with this name there's no oh well can I just take your signature can you give me your date of birth hmm. um, so you know there were genuine concerns in the early 2000s that um that electoral integrity was at risk. Uh, the Council of Europe did a big report. Uh, one electoral commissioner uh, reporting on um, postal vote fraud in Birmingham famously said it was, you know, the, st- the kind of story worthy of a banana republic. Um, so, you know, there were very good reasons to be concerned. But other changes have happened since then. So, for example, we now have individual electoral registration, which, again, in principle is a good thing, but can also be used to turn people off voting. Hmm. So now instead of the head of household, which is a horrible concept, and if anybody tried to claim my husband was the head of my household, I, you know, would have stern words with them <laughs> um, because it's a horrible patriarchal notion. Um, but... You know, we now have individual elector registration. We now have to give personal data about each voter. So it, it that helped tighten things up a bit. Um, the one thing I would say, just to link it back to the podcast you did last week about Windrush, and one of the things that came out about that in the hostile environment was how um, borders stopped, you know, immigration stopped being about just borders. It started being about healthcare professionals, mm. uh, public services, checking on what your immigration status is. I think you can make the same case in terms of intele- individual electoral registration because one of the, the identifiers that the government chose to use is your national insurance number. There are lots of other identifiers that could be used and they specifically chose that one. And for me, I think that's a strong case that that's actually also part of the hostile environment because, yes, you know, obviously I have a national insurance number and I can look it up, but it's not the kind of thing I know off the top of my head. Mm. Uh, it's not like my, uh, my date of birth and a signature, which is what the Electoral Commission ori- originally recommended. So, again, it's that it's linking it back to the context. So, I, you know... I think individual electoral registration is a good thing, but it can it can be implemented in a way, and I think it has been implemented in a way that um, takes a situation where we know there are certain groups that are not on the electoral register and makes it much more likely that they're not going to get on it. Uh, Matt, who are those groups? Well, they tend to be groups who have lower turnout in general. So in, in general, we are talking about younger people, ethnic minorities, uh, people who rent rather than own their, their own home. Um, all people who have lower turnout to begin with, obviously the the, the risk of this sort of thing is that it pushes it even lower. Um, so that is the, the, the sort of the groups that we're talking about. Um, it. I don't want to sound like I'm a conspiracy theorist. It's just that they don't sound like the kind of people that usually vote Tory. <laughs> well, uh, th- this is the thing. I mean, the whenever you hear arguments from either side in this debate or many other debates it will always be framed in terms of this is democracy so you know one side can argue that it's securing the ballot the other side will argue it's maximizing the franchise it just so happens that everyone's 
point of view in this seems to be remarkably strongly correlated <laughs> with the perceived self-interest of the their uh, party allegiance. You terrible cynic. <laughs> it, it's correlation is not causation. That's all I'll say. <laughs> but um, yes, I mean certainly it would have the. I mean those groups are, and in fact, have increasingly so younger people and renters, um, people in urban areas too. Um, have and, and ethnic minorities have swung disproportionately against the Conservatives and towards uh, Labour in recent times. So, whatever you think the motivations might be, the consequences, um, if it reduced turnouts among those groups, uh, would not be advantageous to Labour. Just to fuel your conspiracy theories for a moment. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is, is something you mentioned earlier, which is the boundary changes. Um, because way back in 2011, um, the then coalition government changed the way that um, boundaries would be calculated. And this is like the nerdiest of nerdy, geeky subjects. This mm. is, you know, this is seriously obscure. But um, you've come to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what they've done is they've said that it has to be a very specific number and it can only differentiate between that number by 5% and the only data source that they are using to calculate those constituencies is the electoral register. So we are taking a data set that we know is massively flawed and does not include people who are already represent under who are already underrepresented in our political system. Mm. And we're saying this is the one data set, nothing else that we are going to use to calculate what our constituency boundaries should be and how we reduce the number because we're reducing the number of MPs from 650 to 600 may well be a good thing there's not been a particular rationale of why 600 is suddenly the magic number uh, some could say that there were partisan motivations some would say obviously not mm. um, but you know I'm really concerned about the cumulative effect of using one data source for very tightly controlled boundary changes on top of individual electoral registration on top of the ID pilots it's it's putting a number of different barriers and each of these things in their own right may well be good things but it's about how you implement them are you investing in making sure that people don't drop off the electoral register are you going into universities and giving them the resources to make sure that students do sign up you know there are ways of mitigating all these factors one of the obvious ones in terms of boundary changes would always be to have not one data source but to have a you know use a basket of different measures which would counteract the fact that some people are better registered in different data sets mm. um it's easy to make the case for each of these individual cases, each of these different reforms. But my concern is that overall, what we're saying is we don't actually want people to participate. I mean, I'd say I had sources, sort of, you know, who are not particularly hysterical and not particularly anti-Tory, who were working in civil service, who thought that the, the constituency stuff was pretty grubby sort of uh, mechanisms that were being deployed there. I, I felt like there was certainly a few people out there who would otherwise not be the type who would raise those kind of concerns, who seemed pretty put off by the whole thing and the manner in which it was being conducted. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing with the the the, the change of 2011, I mean, I'm not, I mean, in terms of the single data source, I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's always been based on the, the register. I mean, I know the, the problems, it, it is a problematic source, but, but I didn't realise that was... Yeah, but there, there's been more leeway. It's a problematic data source, but there were other conditions that you could take into account. Sure, but the, I mean, the, the reason why... The, the I mean the, you, the Conservatives wanted to have that um, leeway put on it is because pretty much any time that leeway was used it was always to their disadvantage 
because if you look back to 1956, there's a very, I mean, basically there has always been, Labour seats have always had fewer electors. Now, you could argue, of course, that that's related to registration levels and, and, and so on. But the from the Tories' point of view, the the, the boundaries have always favoured Labour simply because the their constituencies are smaller and that's usually been worth about 10 seats or so, hmm. which obviously in a result like this could make a, um, a, a difference. So they wanted to tighten up simply because the population moves. If you don't update the boundaries, the fact that people tend to move out of inner cities uh, and into the suburbs or into more uh, rural places as they get older is something that if left unchanged it ends up you get a drift that ends up helping labor so that was the um the tories thinking on it but obviously there is a, a fair amount of um controversy just purely because of the underlying um source is something that is not particularly complete uh, that's very, i hadn't quite in, i hadn't realized that the motivation was was sort of almost demographic and life cycle that you have people in the cities as they're young typical labor voters make a bit more money or a sort of family i guess go out into the sort of more suburbs areas that and is that starts shifting the voting patterns well that's it's, it's something's always happening so so after the war once people moved out of the cities because of you know uh, houses being rebuilt outside the cities and, and so on it, it's always been the case that those population moves if you don't update the boundaries then labor seats end up getting smaller in terms of the electorate Tory seats end up getting bigger so it doesn't affect the popular vote but obviously it gives Labour an advantage um, in terms of battery. it doesn't necessarily mean in terms of proportionality because that re- depends on a whole bunch of other things that have nothing to do with boundaries but in terms right. of the boundaries themselves um, the Labour seats have always ended up being smaller so th- that was the whole point of the tightening up mm. um, exercise and also doing it more frequently as well it, it's basically the, the Tories have, a, have had this bugbear for a, a long time and they wanted to to, to address it. But the fact that they've linked it to cutting the number of MPs from 650 to 600 has, of course, paradoxically mean that we haven't changed them at all since 2011. Well, yes. I mean, the, 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 mm. the, 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 fun, the funny thing about the cutting the number of MPs is that, I mean, I believe the, the reason that was given was one of cost mm. after the expensive scandal. Now, the fact that we're, we're now leaving the EU and we're going to lose all of these MEPs who are far more expensive means that mm. perhaps... Um, time has passed that argument by um, somewhat but the actual the number of seats reducing the number of seats from 650 to 600 I mean it makes it very fractionally less proportional but not very much I mean if you're going down to say 300 seats like they have in Canada then the party that wins would get a much much bigger advantage because if you, you get fewer and bigger seats you just get closer and closer to a winner takes all scenario but going from 650 to 600 doesn't actually have that much effect. The biggest effect from the boundary changes is simply the the changing of the relative sizes. Okay, let's go back to the to mm. the pilot. Um, first of all, I mean, before we start looking at the actual <laughs> sort of numbers and breaking down what happened with the pilot, um, is this the kind of pilot? It, there's three kinds of pilots. The number one is we're going to do something we've really decided we're going to do. We have to give it some kind of you know scientific legitimacy, so we'll do a pilot, but ultimately it's going to happen the way it is. The other one is they really are deciding when they're going to do something or not. And the third one is they're going to decide whether they're going to do it, but also the manner in which they do it, either putting out different systems. Was it Which of these three options do we think this, this pilot was? I think they want to do it, and they're testing out exactly how they're going to do it. So for the, the, the different pilots, you could use different forms of ID. So I th- my reading of it is that the government is, is very keen on having ID, uh, but it's whether or not, for example, polling 
cards will be considered an appropriate form of ID or will it, whether it will be photo ID. I mean, the, the key thing that they were testing was that in some areas you had to take photo ID, in some cases you didn't, and in some cases um, just your polling card was considered acceptable. In other cases it had to be, um, you know, like a utility bill or something. Hmm. Um, certainly, you know, I was talking to the Salvation Army who... Um, run a house in um, in Swindon and they you know, obviously work with the homeless community there and getting people away from homelessness. They do a lot of work in voter registration and they spent a lot of time making sure that everybody knew that they had to register to vote, that everybody knew that they had to take their polling card. And, you know, and they have an infrastructure that they were able and willing to do that. But obviously there are not that many organisations doing that kind of work with going to groups that are unlikely to be registered and being underrepresented in our politics saying don't forget you have to take your polling card okay let's take a quick break increasing numbers of organizations are turning towards localized data to build support and win arguments but having collated data the challenge is how to visualize it polymapper is a tool specifically designed to showcase data for policy campaigns at a national and local level by parliamentary constituency local authority and others enabling you to tailor your conversations with policymakers. Visit www.polymapper.co.uk for more. Where did this um, 4,000 number seem to come from? And does it, does it have any legs, as far as we can tell? It's contentious. Certainly the um, Association of Electoral Administrators have suggested that that's not true. Um, but my understanding is that the data comes from people observing the elections uh, in in the trial areas, and you know, and anecdotally reporting what what they were seeing, um, there will obviously be more detailed studies about the pilots, both academically and by the government. So so we'll see in due course. But even if it doesn't turn out that the figure is four thousand, the fact that some people were turned away from voting is a problem. What we also can't know is how many people thought they might go and vote and thought, oh, I forgot my ID, I just won't bother. Right. Um, you know, obviously that's very very hard to measure, but it's that whole chilling effect of thinking, oh, well, I would register to vote, but I can't remember my NL number, so I won't bother, or I'm not quite sure where my polling station is, or I forgot my polling card. Uh, but the polling card issue is an interesting one, because I'm, I'm, on one level, I'm really, really pleased that they allowed that as one of the forms of ID um, for the trials. Uh, but it does also provide create another level of confusion, because obviously in the 2010 election, we had that whole incident in Sheffield where students were being turned away because they didn't turn up with their polling cards when actually you're not legally required to turn up in under normal circumstances mm. with your polling card. So I'm slightly concerned that now we're going to get into situations where people don't know whether or not they need a polling card. But I suppose the short answer is, if in doubt, take your polling card. Matt, you've been breaking down the numbers insofar as they, insofar as we have them. Yes. You know, what, what have you found? Well, very little change. I mean, so to, to put it, uh, start with a, a benchmark, the estimate from John Curtis and Steve Fisher is that nationally the turnout in these local elections was 35% which was unchanged on 2014 so no change overall. Now in the areas the turnouts that we have are all sort of within a point or two um, of what they were in 2014 average of basically no change at all so on that basis there I mean you could say that this has passed or at least not failed the first test However, there are a couple of things to point out. The first of them is that none of these areas, and once we get the ward level um, breakdowns in, it'll be interesting to look if there was within these local authorities whether there was any variation within them by the demographics of, of individual wards. But certainly, as in terms of these council areas as a whole, 
they do not have particularly notable um, contingents of the groups that we were talking about earlier, the you know particularly younger people, ethnic minorities, mm. uh, and, and so on. But, the 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 voters the voting groups that we would be most concerned about and most interested in uh, looking at in detail as part of a trial. So we don't as yet at least have particularly good information on those groups. The second caveat is that this is a local election. Turnout's thirty five percent. It's about half a general election turnout. So by definition. Um, or I mean, certainly perhaps not by definition, but we we know from very strong survey evidence that the sorts of people who vote in general elections but do not vote in local elections are less politically engaged. They're less likely to follow the news. They're less likely to probably know that this sort of thing, um, this is taking place. They may simply be uh, the kind of people who are normally too busy to you know, go and vote in a, a local election and, and so on. So there is concern that this less politically engaged group um, are not or have not really participated in um, in the trial per se, simply because they didn't participate in the local election. So while the, you can sort of put a, a tick in the first box, there are two very big um, tests to be. Um, considered, which have not really come into it yet. Would, is there any chance of us getting demographic information? Does it, do we know whether there's anyone assessing, you know, say, sort of like uh, racial identity or age or, or anything like that outside of the polling station? No, we we don't have um, individual level. That we we don't actually have that data even for general elections. So in some countries, the exit polls get full demographic information and, and so on. Um, our exit poll doesn't get that, and of course we don't even have exit polls in local elections. So the only thing we can do is what we, we call ecological analysis. So we look at the different turnouts in different geographic areas and then look at the demographics of those geographic areas and try to infer a pattern. Now, there are technical reasons why that is much less reliable than individual level data, um, but it is so what we got, have to work with in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because... It always seems to me that when governments don't want to know something, they just make sure that they can't find it out. And if you make sure that there's no information on the demographics, you know, that you're testing at the polling station, if you don't do it in areas that would be particularly affected by this, and as you say, when you do it during a local election, then it seems that the concerns that people had about the kind of demographics that would be affected are sort of neutralised by virtue of the fact that you've done, you've made it almost impossible to test. Well, it makes makes sense to test it first in this. But then the question is, um, if we're talking about next steps, then the next steps would be, would include those two things if if this is sort of satisfactory then they would want to probably test it in a broader range of areas in local elections and then they will want to start looking at um, take it up to a, a general election in in stages I think we the, the point is that we're uh, I, I don't think it's wrong to start out like this but I think there are quite a few more steps before we can say you know this is okay to use in a general election Do you have sort of trust that you think that'll take place in the you you were now expecting that next year's local elections. This is not a prediction that I'm asking you to make, but but just in terms of your expectation, would involve a more diverse sort of range of of areas where where these pilots would take place. I don't I don't know if it will. I think it should because I think that would be necessary, uh, partly in order just to if you're doing a test of how the electorates. Um, 
responds or, or, or deals with this, you have to have due regard for the diversity of the electorate, but also um, the fact that those groups are known to be um, disproportionately affected, perhaps, by this. Um, that is something that should happen, for sure. Whether it will, I don't know. Alex, what are you, what are you expecting? Uh, I'm afraid this brings out all my, you know, inner cynicism. Um, so, you know, I, I agree from a methodological point of view that those would be eminently sensible next steps. I don't have much faith that that is going to be what happens. I would expect to see this start to be rolled out and, you know, that the trials will be uh, declared a success, that they haven't had a significant impact on turnout. Therefore, the security of our ballot means that we absolutely implement this. And it will be done very much in terms of that rec that rhetoric of we're making sure that everybody vote, votes counts and that it's safe and secure and people can trust in elections. And obviously, I want people to have trust in our electoral system, but I want that to be based on everybody having the right to participate and not that some groups are being excluded, um, whether that's intentional or not, or that... Um, and that we are investing in making sure that people know that they have the right to participate and how they can do that. Because at the moment, I'm really concerned that we're not. You're, you're thinking probably that there'd be a, a much wider rollout by the next local elections or? It's going to be, well, one of the things that, you know, is one of the many unknowns about politics at the moment is, of course, when the next general election is going to be. Because mm. in theory, that's 2022. It's entirely possible it's before that. Um, so it's whether or not they do keep just doing this for local elections or whether or not they try and scale it up for, for a general. Uh, obviously, if there's a snap election, that's less likely. Um, but I would, you know, it may well be that, for example, at the next general election, what they do is, is, is they try and roll it out for that, at least in pilot form. OK, this is I mean, this I think that, that is actually a fairly satisfying sort of um, test to sort of leave it on of sort of thinking if there is a, a useful assessment of how sort of trustworthy the government is on this or how much validity there are to opposition party concerns could be how thorough the methodological changes are that take place now and if there really are tests to evaluate for them and if there are not people may be uh, justified in having a more cynical approach towards the entire thing. It doesn't seem like an unfair test to impose on the government at this day. I think that's one test, but for me, you know, and I've said this a lot, but it comes back to the whole thing of, well, why are we doing this? Hmm. You know, what is the motivation for doing this particular reform at this particular time? And um, I don't see that there is enough evidence of um, anything that would be solved by voter ID, namely personation, uh, that I don't see that that is a big enough problem in our electoral administration system that warrants the trials that warrants going ahead with this. Um, if you want to talk about changing election expenses laws or uh, uh, campaign spending or uh, our electoral system or postal vote fraud, then, you know, I'm there and I have a number of ways that you can do that. But, um, you know, as I said, I don't have a problem in principle with, with ID, but at polling stations, but I still don't see where the big problem is that we're trying to solve. There are far, far bigger problems with our democracy, one of which is, as we've said before, that people aren't turning out to vote. So maybe we could actually talk about that and look at what, what might make them want to vote and how we do politics differently to encourage that, rather than saying, OK, you're not voting here, you know, have a new requirement that's probably going to make you stop voting. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's some, there's quite a few interesting things to... to um, 
that could be the subject of a, of a whole podcast within <laughs> that list, uh, and I, I, I hope they are at some point. But I mean, the the I, I, I agree. The elephant in the room here is the, the postal voting because that is something that is known to be a significant problem, um, and is something that you know you can certainly make an objective case for wanting to to look at that. Or, or I mean, they have made slight changes to the to the requirements, but only really um, around the edges. They haven't really. Uh, restricted it to any great extent, um, so that certainly warrants looking at. And then on on uh, non votes, I mean that is uh, turnout has been going up apart from these elections. They across levels of government, it has generally been going up over the last few years in the UK and abroad. But the UK is still low relative to other Western democracies, and I mean even if it were eighty percent, um, you know, like it was or was close to you know a few decades ago that's still a good few people not participating so i mean i think there's certainly scope for for research into it it is very difficult research to do simply because if you're doing political polling it's very hard to get hold of non-voters because they are very disinterested in 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 the topic that you're doing a survey about so the the i mean that is one of the things that that our polling is is working on but at the moment the main source for that are these very very expensive academic studies where they actually go and knock on people's doors like the british election study and there is some data in that and it'll be quite interesting to unpack um but that is i i mean i i think that is the the, the, the key area for research to be done. It's just very difficult to do. Great stuff. Alex, what are you up to next? <laughs> Fighting the forces of, uh, of uh, electoral reform in another area, I take it. Um, well, one of the big things we're working on at the moment, as I said, is Brexit and the power grab and trying to make sure that if we are leaving the European Union that it's uh, us taking back control and not just Theresa May and the Cabinet um, and making sure that Parliament has a say and that the public are involved um, but in terms of this specific area, yeah, our, our big thing, as I've been ranting about frequently, is um, election spending and um, how we regulate that. Michael Crick often gets the quote of saying that uh, it's widely known that you can drive a coach and horses through election spending rules. And we've well and truly proven that with the 2015 election. And it's, I find it shocking that more hasn't happened as a result of that. So we're doing a lot on that. Matt, and what are you turning your analysis skills to next? Well, the having had the local elections, we've now got a wealth of pretty local data for, I mean, uh, thousands of wards around the country. So we've got uh, quite a lot to play with there. And then, you know, all, all the different patterns. I mean, who knows what's going to come out of, of, of that? And obviously this, this voter ID thing will be part of it, but there are many, many, many things to look at in that. I'm sure it'll be very interesting. And then also there is still data not yet published from the number crunch politics poll uh, from about a month ago so the voting tension and the, the main stuff on that we've had some stuff out um, about austerity and then there's there's stuff to come on um, other topics we've had something on brexit so uh, there's plenty more to come and possibly some more polling in the future but that's not that's still to be decided Good stuff. Looking forward to it. The other thing I should have mentioned, of course, which is our big campaign, which I've conveniently forgotten, <laughs> <laughs> which is that we're going to be launching um, a campaign around uh, the case for a written constitution and why we, the people of the United Kingdom, should sit down and actually decide how we're governed and why we're governed and how we're governed. I look forward to that. That sounds like a very large meeting. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to go on for a terribly long time. Um, guys, thank you so much for coming in. Alex, tell us, uh, tell us your Twitter handle so people can follow you on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Alex Swanswick and the organisation's one is at Unlock Democracy. Fantastic, Matt. 
Mine is at MattSing underscore and number crunch politics is at NC Politics UK. Fantastic. Uh, you have been listening to them both and also to me, Ian Dunt, the editor of politics.co.uk. You can follow me at, at Ian Dunt. You can follow politics.co.uk at the rather irritatingly titled at politics underscore co underscore UK. Our producer is Federica Romaniello. You can follow her on Twitter at Fede underscore Romaniello. It will leave it up to you to figure out how on earth you spell Romaniello and that'll be the test for this week to see how we do. <laughs>